0: Hey this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast that puts the literary lights on the world's greatest storyteller. Welcome, welcome everyone to episode 15. We're going to have a lot of fun today because I completely went off map and off menu and decided to revisit 2019's The Institute. Dear listener, I am just as surprised as you are, to be honest, because uh, this podcast is about exploring exclusively the underrated works of Stephen King, but what's so nice about this uh, quarantine thing we got going on is just sort of the radical acceptance of all the strange things. And I don't know why, but I was making my way through Duma Key, loving it, having a blast, wondering what my next novel was going to be, I had plans for either Full Dark No Stars or Richard Bachman's The Long Walk when, I don't know why, I just kept thinking about the Institute and my little brain was telling me, you need to go back and hang out with Avery and Kalisha and Luke and Nick and all the kids. And to my dismay, I I just decided to go with it. So we're going to go with it and we're going to have fun. And we're going to look at this really fun novel that is very reminiscent of one of Stephen King's greatest novels of all time, which is 1986's It. So speaking of 80s, personally, I've been imbibing in lots of things 80s. I'm a proud 80s baby. But... While in quarantine, there is so uh, much we cannot control outside of our walls. So I've been trying to make the inside as fun and enjoyable and colorful and tasty as possible. So I've been listening to a lot of my favorite 80s hits, all the pop tunes, my favorite shows, as well as um, snacking on some of my favorite delicious, highly palatable foods for comfort. And I think that's what this book is. The Institute is like an old favorite friend slash feel-good, delicious, reminiscent experience. Very much like your favorite highly caloric snack. So I think that that might have been what persuaded me to head back to the Institute is just wanting that comfort. I've been watching a lot of 80s movies, I revisited Back to the Future, and I did another round of Stranger Things because Stranger Things is such a delight if you haven't yet watched. It's a winning combination of everything we love. We love the 80s, we love Steven Spielberg, we love Steven Spielberg 80s films about kids. It's just winning, it's winning all across the board. and so, for me, the Institute is so reminiscent of all of those feel good, comforting, favorite things. So, for whatever reason, I just decided to head back that way and double back and revisit this super cute little book I reread last Christmas. So, we're gonna change it up just a little bit on this episode. Um, our usual formula is gonna deviate only slightly. Mostly because this novel is a really enjoyable experience, however, as I've read with other reviewers and observed with other fans who've read this book, It's 90% wonderful, but there's a 10% little zone, like a little pizza slice, where I was a little bit unsatisfied or hungry for a little bit more. Um, It might be around 85-15, 90-10 for a lot of fans. Some people, it was just a home run. I've talked to Liz R. about this book. She gave it absolutely five stars, solid all the way. Upon this second read, I have a little bit more acceptance uh, at just digesting it for what it is, which is a wonderfully reminiscent experience. However, I'm just there's just a couple things, and we're gonna explore that on this episode. So rather than looking at what's unique on the podcast, we are in this episode, going to look at what's interesting, mostly because what's great about the Institute is that it's not unique. It's super retro and what's old is new again. So we're going to look at what kind of makes this fun. That's going to be our first segment is what I really found interesting about this very reminiscent story that has some awesome kids and characters in it. We are going to keep heroes, villains, and honorable mentions because we have some gems ladies and gentlemen. We've got some precious little people in this novel that sing and shine bright and are so brave and great. So I want to mention those with all of you. And then rather than our sort of third area we usually explore, which is what's working and what's not, we're going to incorporate a segment I'd like to call Wishing Well, which is um, sort of workshop-esque. It's what I do with my students where we kind of suggest ideas or what we would have liked to maybe have seen or alternate paths, alternate routes in the story or the narrative that might be worth exploring. So it's kind of like casting our little coins into the fountain, sort of saying, I kind of wish we would have went here or would have explored this more, or basically to look at maybe a few little potholes where I wish we would have spent a little more time. So it's just going to be a fun bonus episode because this novel is fun and delightful and I also think the reason why I wanted to revisit it so much is because this story is about escape. It is a true full-blown escape and getting out of a hard place and running for your life and I think a lot of us have wanted to do that lately Um, and we can't but we want to but we can't and so that feverish desire to be free and to break out and um, run as fast as we can is, uh, I think, a deep desire in many of us right now. So I highly recommend uh, either revisiting the Institute with me or diving in for the first time. It is really enjoyable and super tasty, much like your favorite comfort food slash junk food. So we're going to explore those sections in this episode. Um, This novel, I believe I've heard, is Mr. King's 61st novel. My goodness. When I hear that number, I just feel like I haven't even made a dent in his extraordinary catalog. It was released in 2019 and we're at a little over 560 pages, so a nice delicious chunk there. Um, I'm going to... Before I read the little summary I have for you guys, Stephen King dedicated this novel to his grandsons. So there's a lot of youth spirit sort of right from the get-go. We're going to talk about maybe how youthful this story is in the next section. But if you have not read The Institute, I'm going to read a brief sort of synopsis to get us going. So Luke Ellis is an extremely gifted Minnesota 12-year-old. He is already applying for colleges when he is kidnapped in the middle of the night. His parents are murdered and he's the newest addition of the Institute, an undisclosed encampment of young preteens who all demonstrate telepathic or telekinetic abilities. So Steve King said he got this idea from some of the sadistic slash uh, bananas Uh, tests that the CIA performed in the 1950s. I think many of you guys might have a little bit more um, information on that than I do, but I know that they did some crazy stuff. They tested all the drugs and went down every sort of potential pathway from aliens to the occult to um, psychics, telepathics, telekinetics, all of the things um, in regards to whatever power or avenues of power they could potentially explore. So a little bit Nazi party um, in that regard in terms of the hunt for the uh, Ark of the Covenant for all of you Raiders of the Lost Ark fans. um, You know, Hitler himself was supposedly super into the occult with like Mandrake roots and he had astrologers and all kinds of stuff. I won't go too far down that tangent, but we have uh, a lovely tale where the good guys are good The bad guys are so bad, and it's a tasty story. So... Let's go ahead and dive into the sections. Uh, If you haven't read The Institute and you would like to hang on for a little while longer, that's totally okay, but this is going to be a spoiler-free adventure. So I won't reveal any endings, but I am going to talk about characters in depth as well as a few of the themes and a few plot points, but for the most part we're going to stay in that spoiler-free zone. If you want to be completely in the dark, go ahead and hold off on this episode until you're done with the Institute, it reads surprisingly fast. The pacing just moves. And that's sort of a good thing and a bad thing, but we'll explore that here a little more coming up. But let's go ahead and uh, dive in together. Uh, Get your hiking boots on because we're going into the deep, dark Maine woods to the Institute. I'll see you there. (laughs) Bye. <laughs> Okay, guys, let's go ahead and explore what's really interesting about the Institute. I have about five categories I've boiled down on this second reading that I wanna talk to you about. And the first one is kind of echoing my initial thoughts in the introduction about the vintage, overall reminiscent feeling of this novel. So my first point is called Black and White slash Vintage Roots. And what I mean by black and white Is that this novel is really reading like a very classic good versus evil story. There's not a lot of complexity or too much dynamic plot slash character. It's really simple, and there's something very reassuring about that. On my initial read-through, I think that might have been one of the problem areas that I detected at first is maybe it's a little too simple, but we'll talk about that in greater detail in the upcoming sections. But the black and white nature of it, the good guys are so good and pure and just and right, and the bad guys are irredeemable and bad, and they all deserve death and nothing less. They're just terrible, terrible people. So those lines in the sand are drawn from moment one, and they never really deviate. So it's a really classic good versus evil simple tale, Um, In addition to that, the the vintage roots of it make it very much like an 80s movie, especially with the kids, with the psychic powers, um, and the lack of adult supervision, or the adult supervision that's not welcomed. Um, But the pacing we find here is a perfect two hour movie. It really is. And um, in my episode with Liz R, she mentions how Stephen King is notoriously grouped into writers who are popcorn writers, meaning they just write for film because their stuff is so easily adapted to the screen. But I don't know if I agree with that on many of his novels. I just think he's the best writer ever. So everybody wants to make his movies or his books into movies rather. But this one I will 100% say that this is a perfect film adaptation. Um, It's ready for the movies right now. It it reads like a movie, just the way it's paced. We have the initial conflict, we have the sort of tumultuous um, situation in the middle with our protagonist escaping, and then we have the climactic um, finishing moment. So it's a classic ready-for-the-screen kind of story. Um, I believe Word on the Street, it has been scooped up and it's going to be a miniseries, which I think will be awesome because then we'll get more in-depth character uh, moments than what we have here, because the kids are who really shines bright in this story. So the Black and White Vintage Roots, it's a simple story. It moves quickly. You could probably read it in a day or two. That's about the time it took me on the second read-through. Um, it's, it's very fast, and there's a lot of action scenes. Lots of action. So it's just ready for the silver screen in regards to all of the really suspenseful action moments in this, um, in this story. So the second point that I found really, really interesting, and many Stephen King readers of this book did as well, is the structure. Mostly because What's really curious and perplexing is for this novel, the first 40 pages, we have a character named Tim Jameson. He's a former Florida Florida cop who was dismissed for something moderately dumb and kind of embarrassing. So he leaves and kind of makes his way as this unemployed guy who's trying to start over and ends up in Dupree, South Carolina, which is a tiny little speck of a town. And we kind of get a little bit of introduction to him coming to the town and getting a little night job as a kind of night cop, uh, a guard who they call a night knocker. So that's the first 40 pages. Very intriguing. And then all of a sudden the narration shifts to Luke and we do not hear from Tim until page 350 which is quite a jump. And it it was really, really surprising and very, very unique. And it felt very experimental to me. It really got me curious as to what he was, what Mr. King was thinking, or, you know, basically just the way he's positioning these pieces lead you to uh, sort of for me, ponder like what does this move sort of mean? Like what does this giant space, what could it be leading to? So in addition to that, I think what may have, well, before I talk about genre, the other aspect of structure that's also pretty cool and working well is once the I want to say students (laughs) I'm surrounded by them but once the kids get to um, the Institute they're hanging out in the front half and the word front half is used quite a bit and so the reader comes to find out that front half is the kind of more recreational easy, uh, area where the kids congregate, they have access to snacks and, um, actually cigarettes and malt liquor, uh, go figure, uh, more on that in a second, but they, uh, it's, it's a little bit more laid back, whereas back half is the mysterious unknown that the kids start to mention to each other almost right away. And all they know is that once you leave front half and you go to back half, you're never seen again. So it's very ominous, it's very mysterious, and I do enjoy the way it's structured to create that incredible suspense. And then it doesn't take very long in the reading until you as the reader are in back half so the transition and the actual physical transportation to that side of the institute does happen in a pretty quick way and so you really feel like you're on that ride so i do appreciate the movement of the structure as well as the experimental positioning of certain things uh as certain settings especially and tim jameson is just you know a really um He's an anomaly, that's for sure. As far as the big long jump we see, so what got me thinking about the character of Tim Jameson is my third little category point, where it's titled genre question mark, and this is because I really feel that if you were to chop out the first forty pages that belong to Tim Jameson and give this story at least. 350 pages of it to a reader completely blind about who the author is, it absolutely reads as a young adult fiction novel. It's just steeped in all of the categorical contemporary YA sort of tropes and character plots and premises that we see. Um, it it, uh, it absolutely reads like that i mean we've got luke is our narrator he carries us the entire story although he's incredibly gifted and wise and very smart and way beyond his 12 years he's still very young and he is uh guiding us through the story and we see right away all of the we are exposed in this story to approximately I want to say 12 to 15 young kids' names. Um, we, You'll probably, as the reader, get a spotlight for about eight of them where you'll see their names recurring and then you'll really actually get them in the spotlight and in the foreground. But we have all of these Uh, YA kind of uh, tropes and ideas and premises. We have, unfortunately, a lot of torture. These kids really go through a lot of terrible things, Um, sort of like in Hunger Games, if you guys are familiar with Suzanne Collins' trilogy, uh, awesome YA trilogy. But We have kids undergoing just so much pain and suffering. They don't have parents. Their parents have been murdered. They're really bonding together in this summer camp and hell kind of environment. They're confused and they have to really stick up for themselves and each other, but they can't. Um, As I mentioned, uh, in order to pacify them, the Institute staff grants them tokens for being calm and obedient, and they give out these tokens and they can buy Mike's Hard Lemonade, they can buy malt liquor, they can buy wine coolers and cigarettes and a lot of them do and they uh are trying to cope and trying to stay sane or trying to stay buzzed because they're so devastated and in shock and all these things and it's it's very reminiscent of se hinton's the outsiders which hopefully we all read in school it's the best book ever and it's like greasers and socas and all all these kids soda pop and pony boy breaking glass bottles for weapons you know like just these wild kids smoking cigarettes. And so we've we've got these classic young adult sort of themes being explored right off the bat. And so I wonder, I really wonder if Mr. King's editor was like, made him insert those 40 pages of Tim Jameson just to just to throw us off from from it not being a YA novel. Not that genre really has anything to do with it though because I mean Mr. King is king of the castle. He can do whatever he wants but I wonder if maybe he wanted to avoid the YA or he didn't really want young adults reading it or gravitating to it because it is mature a text because despite the fact that there's you know cigarettes and alcohol and 12 year olds are drinking it there's a lot of violence, there's um, a lot of torture and suffering and he's a dad so maybe he was just being you know Mr. Mr. King as our dad and not really wanting us to be exposed to that. Um, Because it's bleak. It's bleak for a long time. And if you guys are sensitive to any sort of abuse descriptions, uh, there's a lot of slapping. There's a lot of just torture through these various medical experiments that they're performing on these kids. It's intense. And there were a couple times where it just gets a little difficult to stomach. Thankfully, it's not overwhelmingly gratuitous. There's not a lot of, there's not a ton of detail in some of these tortury scenes, but it's hard. And what's also kind of Refreshing as a reminder is how often the kids cry, and that's as sad as it is to say. It just reminds you, as the reader, that they're not adults; they're little. And even though they're 12, and 14, and 13, and they're trying to be brave, they are still so young. And it really makes the story even more impactful and meaningful because these precious-like people uh, are really going through quite a terrible ordeal. And you just want to help them as much as you can. So, really creates that powerful sense of sympathy between the reader and these kids at the Institute. So my my fourth point that I super nerded out about, this is the kind of stuff I live for, is biblical illusion. So quick side tangent, I am such a proponent of the humanities majors. So mega three cheers to anybody who's a humanities major or focus. Um, I got my minor in religious studies and it was the best thing I ever did. Most fun I ever had in college. Best tuition money I ever spent. But the story of Samson, is prevalent throughout this story. We actually have a direct quote uh, at the beginning of the novel uh, about Samson. So if you guys aren't familiar, I'm going to give you a real quick Sunday school version. But the story of Samson is, he's a, well, I don't want to get too nerdy because I can, but Samson's is a figure in the Bible who is well known for his strength. Think like Biblical WWE like, uh, kind of body type. Like we are talking strong, like absolutely ripped and built and incredibly strong and superhuman strength, really, because it was superhuman. Uh, he was given a gift by God to have amazing strength. And the source of that strength was his hair needed to be kept very, very long. And it was a secret. He couldn't tell anybody about his strength being connected to the length of his hair but um that is the shortened version of the figure of Samson he usually has long hair he's really strong but if you are interested in reading it I highly recommend it's in the book of Judges in your garden variety uh King James version it is a rated r story guys um there is i mean for the bible there is tons of sex tons of violence politics manipulation it is dripping in good stuff in terms of page turner so samson is absolutely manipulated like left right all over the place and what's the the illusion that is Continuing throughout this story is at the end of Samson's journey, he's really been screwed over royally. It's basically his own fault, though, but he's uh, he's in a rough spot. He's been blinded. They put out his eyes. Um, the Philistines, I think. Um, I might be wrong on that. Don't quote me. But he's wounded, blinded, his strength is gone, and he's in the temple. And basically he asks God for one more moment of strength, one more moment of invincible power. And he gets it. And he he pushes these pillars of a temple and the entire temple comes crashing down and kills everybody, including Samson. And so we see throughout this story, mentioning like Samson, bringing it down on their heads. Luke mentions that a couple times, and it's awesome. So we have a really wonderful allusion and parallel to the biblical story of Samson of, like Luke, who is extremely gifted, very smart, very wise. The character of Samson, of course, is gifted through this superhuman strength. So they're parallels for each other, and the fact that this is the Theme ongoing makes the ending even more poetic. So I really enjoyed seeing that throughout. If you are interested in some really sort of rated R Bible story, highly recommend Samson. If you guys went to Sunday school when you were a kid, it's way darker than you remember. So uh, if you do have some time, it's not very long. I I recommend. But the biblical illusion, I live for that stuff, and we see it often in. um, In uh, King's work, so I was happy to see it here as the parallels between Samson and Luke are pretty strong. So, my last point that I found incredibly interesting, and this is the only area of the novel that asks some dynamic sort of multi-layered, complex questions. Everything else is really black and white, as I mentioned before, really simple. But this is where we get a little bit of like, hmm, I don't know what the right answer is. It asks some hard questions. So what is the reader find out without revealing too much is that The Institute has been in operation for 75 years, and in a really sort of quick, compressed, condensed uh, version of what they do is they kidnap kids who are incredibly gifted, your psychic, telekinetic, telepathic kids, and they try to enhance them or basically utilize them to protect the world. Um, And that's going to be as bare bones as I'm going to leave it because I don't want to reveal too much to you guys. But they commit heinous acts against children in order to protect civilization. And so their argument and the reason why so many of these adults, which most of the institute staff is former military, uh, they're just obeying orders, and they believe in their work. And so, this story really asks the reader: can can it be reconciled? Can you sacrifice a few for the many? Um, is that something that at what cost? At what cost can it be reconciled? Um, so it's it's an interesting concept of looking because you you. Once you see what's going on the on the Institute, uh, within the Institute, you're absolutely horrified and you're just like, this place is the worst place ever. Um, and then as the novel progresses and the plot gets deeper and the levels get deeper and you realize just how far the reach is of the Institute, it asks these big questions about, okay, well, if there is no more Institute, then what happens? So, I I really enjoyed going back and forth in my mind like that. And I think that is the biggest area where the reader really gets to think and ponder and balance. Because, yes, it's very easy to say, oh my God, close the institute now. It's hell on earth, these poor children. Oh my God, oh my God. But then um, when you actually learn what the children's powers are doing and what it has meant for world civilization it it asks some big questions so i don't want to reveal too much and if i keep going i definitely will um but those are my five points so to recap we have the black and white uh, vintage feel we have structure we have genre question mark because i really think this is just a little hair away from being a young adult novel Um, We have biblical illusion and we have the Institute's purpose. So those are the points that I really boiled down into a thick sauce where I wanted to put those, um, propose those to you guys and see what you think. Uh, Now what I want to do is there's a couple areas... There's two chunks of text uh, from this story that I absolutely adore, Uh, and so I want to share those with you. And I might save the other one toward the end, I'm not sure, but this is one of my favorite scenes. I read it over, it made me tear up when I first read it. So this is on 347, and this is when uh, our character Luke, without revealing too much, is on the move. This is the middle of page 347. Alright, let me move stuff here. There was a pause. Then Maddie said, Nope. Luke had been sitting forward. At that single word, he put his head back against the boxcar wall and closed his eyes. Ten minutes or so later, train 9956 gave a hard jerk that ran through the cars. that were now an even 100, like a shutter. The train yard began to roll past, slowly at first, then picking up speed. The shadow of a signal tower ran across the floor of the boxcar, and then another shadow appeared. A man shadow. A grease-spotted paper bag flew into the car and landed on the floor. He didn't see Maddie, only heard him. Good luck, outlaw! Then the shadow was gone. Luke crawled out of his hiding place so fast he cracked the goodier side of his head on the housing of a riding lawnmower. He didn't even notice. Heaven was in that bag. He could smell it. Heaven turned out to be a cheese and sausage biscuit, a hostess fruit pie, and a bottle of Carolina Sweetheart spring water. Luke had to use all his willpower to keep from drinking the whole 16 ounce bottle of water at a single go. He left a quarter of it, set it down, then snatched it up again and screwed on the cap. He thought if the train took a sudden yaw and it spilled, he would go insane. He gobbled the sausage biscuit in five snatching bites and chased it with another big swallow of water. He licked the grease from his palm, then took the water and the hostess pie and crept back into his nest. For the first time since riding down the river in the SS Pokey and looking up at the stars, He felt that his life might be worth living. And although he did not exactly believe in God, having found the evidence against just slightly stronger than the evidence for, he prayed anyway, but not for himself. He prayed for the highly hypothetical higher power to bless the man who had called him outlaw and thrown that brown bag into the boxcar. I love it. I love that scene so much. um, And I hope you guys do too. I have one more chunk of text that I'm going to share in our heroes, villains, and honorable mentions section. And it's so good. So let's go ahead and uh, meet me over in our character analysis section. Okay friends, let's go ahead and examine some really precious young folk as well as some super stellar adults in the Institute. However, before I start breaking down my isolated favorites, I did want to discuss an overall criticism with this story is that though the characters we have are sweet and black and white, we don't have a ton of character development like we've seen in other Stephen King novels. We get little tiny breadcrumbs of character here and there, but not a lot. I think the pace of this book is going too quickly in order to give us those isolated moments. And this I'm going to speak of in greater detail in our next section, but I think that's why Some readers are left hungry for a little more because I think we're a little spoiled. When you have such wonderfully rich character books that we have in Stephen King's catalog, it, it, I think it's like eating filet mignon all the time. It's really hard to get a, a less glamorous cut of meat in terms of uh, one that isn't super rich and decadent. Um, so I think with the Institute, we have, we don't have a ribeye or a filet. We, we've got ground beef and it's good. It's working, it's tasty. But when you're used to eating filet mignon all the time. You can get a little bit of a snobby palette. I think that what might be uh, is occurring for some of us readers. But on to some of the sweetest, loveliest, richest characters we've got in this little story. So I first want to begin with Not only is he a hero, I put a U in front of the H for ultimate hero. He is my favorite character of the Institute, and that is 10-year-old Avery the Avester Dixon. What a precious little guy. He is the best. So Avery is a sweetheart and when he comes to the Institute and he's meeting everybody in front half, he is the youngest uh, person that they've had thus far. Everybody at the Institute has a median age of around 12 to 13. Avery is 10 and what we come to find out with young Avery is he's also the most powerful. So I love that King decided to make the smallest package the one who's got the biggest amount of telepathic ability. He's extremely talented and he kind of reminds me a little bit of little Danny Torrance, a little bit. But um, Avery, when we first meet him, he's really scared and very emotional and really relies on Kalisha and Luke to make him feel better for comfort. He sleeps alternating in their beds. He just is really, really kind of struggling and having a hard time and really needing Um, just full of need, and he's also the youngest, and um, bless him, he's, you know, undergoing these experiments on these 12 and 13 year old kids is devastating, and so for little Avery, it's especially difficult. So everyone really takes care of Avery, and he's just unashamedly who he is, he knows he's small, he knows he's an underdog, but something happens around page 350 where Little Avery just goes to Big Avery real quick and he is so incredibly smart and brave and stands up to a lot of opposition and really comes up with some genius concepts that turn the tide of the whole novel as well as the situation for all of the kids at the Institute. So he is my ultimate hero and I need a t-shirt that says the Avestar star on it and I know some crafty fan out there must be making them and when I find out, you're just going to take my money because I need an Avester t-shirt. He is my ultimate hero. He's delightful. He's worth reading the book a second time just to be with little Avery. Um, My second uh, hero is an adult, and I was close to giving her an honorable mention, but I decided to actually brand her as hero. And that is our housekeeper inside the Institute named Maureen Alverson. And so she is actually a complex character. um, One of the very few that we have in the Institute Uh, For the most part, everybody is pretty black and white, pretty cut and dry. But Maureen is former military. She's served and been in interrogative situations throughout her entire career. And then in the Institute, she's a housekeeper. So she seems very low and quiet and unassuming. And what we find out about Maureen is she's actually a huge snitch. Um, but her motivations for doing so are financially motivated because she's in a really sticky situation due to a former husband. She's got a lot of debt. She has a child she's trying to get this money to, and Luke Ellis offers her some help, and it really changes her actions and her thought process, and she ends up making a really big switch and being of immense help to the kids within the Institute. So Maureen definitely gets that hero badge because she does have a moment where she is able to turn away from her past and step into a brighter future where she's actually of service and rather than snitching on the kids and contributing to their demise and further harm she decides to make a stand and go the other way and I really enjoyed seeing that and that was one of the most dynamic moments in the novel was witnessing that from Maureen and so she's a cool character that uh when we first meet her and for uh, many moments in the book she just seems meek and forgettable and just someone in the background but she possessed a lot of power and influence and in the end made some really great redeeming choices. So a round of applause for Maureen. I enjoyed her quite a bit. Um, my next favorite hero is Kalisha Benson and she is a delightful sassy. I believe she's about 13. She's got a little bit of a sailor mouth, but rightly so. She's a telepath and she takes care of Avery and they have a pretty rich, uh, friendship both mentally and physically. Um, she seems to kind of put everybody in line. She's wise, very sassy, very feisty. Luke super duper has a crush on her. I think everybody does because Kalicia's just great. Um, but one of my favorite uh, moments with Kalicia, it's really small. She has dozens of moments where she's just awesome and um, being a great friend, being a teammate. But there's a scene where they're in back half, so it's pretty bleak already. And her friend Helen is really having a hard time because the injections and the experiments and all of the terrible torture these kids are undergoing starts to really debilitate them and they get intense headaches and illness and general um what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, fatigue slash, um, it starts with an L. I'll come back to it. But, uh, Helen, she's really in a catatonic state. She's sitting at the dinner table. She can barely speak or focus and she's just drooling there. And, Kalisha's feeding her and she's just encouraging her and she goes, come on Helen, come on hell on wheels, here we go. And she's so sweet and just trying to get a little bit of stew into her mouth but I love how she calls her hell on wheels and we just see so many cute just encouraging moments from Kalisha even though... They are suffering and being tortured and she keeps it cheery and light and she's a huge hero and I love spending time with her and I love her interactions with Nick as well as Luke. So Kalisha's great and I'm so excited for the actress, for whoever gets to play her in whatever miniseries or film they do, she's gonna be a firecracker and I will be really excited to see who they pick. So my second favorite hero right alongside Kalisha is 14 year old Nick Wilhelm. And if you would, for those 80s babies or 80s fans, think of John Bender from The Breakfast Club just think of Judd Nelson in all of his glory, in his trench coat and in his gloves. And that is the attitude and badassery of Nick Wilhelm. He's so cool. And what I love about Nick is he just is slinging punches and never, despite all of the physical beatings and torture, never stops fighting. He never gives up. When he gets to back half, it gets harder for him and the fight really drains out of him, but that spirit and that fight, he's a badass, and he's just got that John Bender, like, I'm going to give you the finger first and screw you, and I'm going to go down swinging and covered in bruises, and I don't care how many times you punch me or kick me, I'm never going to give up, and I'm not going to stop hating you, um, And so I think he is one of the characters that holds out the longest in terms of that sheer screw you attitude, which is great. And what I also love is that although he's outrightly mean and cruel to the Institute staff and just really giving them that um, fierceness and that anger consistently, he's never cruel to his fellow um, sort of... Inmates, the the other kids, he's the one who created uh, the nickname for Avery. Started calling him the Avester. He's a good guy, and he's good to his friends, and cares, and he's loving towards them. Rather than he could just be a giant asshole all around and really repel everybody, but he's not. He he picks his sides. He knows who the good guys are, and he's kind to them, and he sticks up for them. He protects Avery, he protects everybody. Um, and he but he fights back and he doesn't stop fighting and so he's really enjoyable and he's got that just wonderful smart ass wit um and he's just embodying john bender for me and john bender from the breakfast club is just i mean who does not love him like you you're 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 ill if you are not in love with john bender he's maybe the best character of the 80s and the best character in the breakfast club for sure So my other favorites, we are kind of going into our honorable mention, uh, category. Um, as I've kind of announced on other episodes, I am in love when Mr. King writes about senior citizens and we have a delightful one. I I think she's middle-aged. Uh, she's definitely an older lady. Um, but that's Orphan Annie Ledoux and that is her nickname. And she is a homeless woman who lives in Dupre, South Carolina. She's incredibly quirky and just wears a sombrero and <laughs> a little poncho, and she sleeps in a tent behind uh, one of the sort of factories in Dupre, and Tim Jameson's really nice to her. She's a conspiracy theorist with a good heart, and she shows up at the beginning of the novel and at the end of the novel when really all hell breaks loose, and that age-old adage of, Annie, get your gun, is incredibly applicable for orphan Annie Ledoux. So, hilarious. She has some great one-liners in the latter half in the novel she's feisty and just, you know, I think many in the town write her off as just being a crazy homeless lady who's really skinny and just kind of odd, but she's got all her faculties and she might be the only one who knows all the truth. So she's a great friend to Luke and, um, I love her so much. And some of her one-liners are not only are they great, but then they're like dunked in that Southern accent. That's so fun. So Orphan Annie Ledoux is precious, and she's a really great friend to have in a pinch. And I love the action scenes that she's involved in a little bit later on in the novel. So I have another quick, just really quick, honorable mention, and that's simply because. I just finished Key, and we had a set of twin girls in DumaKey, and I was like, oh my god, twin girls. Well, we've got another one, and I was excited about that. We have Gerda and Greta, and I believe they are 12-year-old twins, and they have a little bit of screen time here in the Institute, but I think ever since my twins going through the catalog of Stephen King, anytime they show up, it's always like, oh my god. So um, I got excited about seeing another set of real twins girls. So I don't really have any villains because I'm mostly going to talk about some of the villains in our next section, which is my wishing well section. Um, As I mentioned earlier, the villains that we have, there's not a lot to really talk about um, other than what's lacking because they are just cut and dry, black and white, bad guys. And we don't have a lot of detail on why they are that way. So I'm going to talk about that more in depth in our next section. But my last hero, of course, is Luke Ellis. He's so impressive. He's wonderful uh, as a narrator of this story. He's incredibly brave and really brave, especially when we get some of the harrowing moments where he... He is so crafty and smart that within the institute, uh, the kids are able to utilize the internet with their tokens, however it's extremely monitored, but um, Luke finds a way to get to the back door and he finds out about his parents' fate. And through all of the devastating pain and loss that he goes through, he is determined to never go to back half. Um, He'll do anything. And that triumphant, desperate spirit is really great to see. And it just reminds me of some of those timeless young adult novels that we have in those survival stories, like that Jack London kind of vibe where that determined spirit of mankind Um, like in Hatchet or in Red Badge of Courage and like that wonderful, brave spirit we have in a young man. So I love that about Luke and... I love that he's so brilliant, he might even be too brilliant, but this experience really reduces him to that childlike nature where the trauma of this event just morphs him and changes him and he he's really reduced to that animal level of survival. Um, He's a wonderful character. And so before we head out of this section into the next, I wanted to share with you my second favorite passage of the novel. Um, This is my other favorite here that um, I wanted to share with you guys where Luke is uh, still on the move. This is in the middle of page 267. From somewhere behind him on the left came the double blast of an electric horn. He turned and saw a single bright headlight flickering through the trees, first coming sea level with his boat, then passing it. He couldn't see the engine or the train it was hauling. There were too many trees in the way, but he could hear the rumble of the trucks and the bratty squall of steel wheels on steel rails. That was what finally nailed it for him. This was not some incredibly detailed fantasy going on inside his brain as he lay sleeping in his West Wing bed. That was a real train over there, probably headed for Denison River Bend. This was a real boat he was in, sliding south on this slow and beautiful current. Those were real stars overhead. The minions of Sigsbee would come after him, of course, but I'm never going to back half. Never. He put one hand over the side of the SS Pokey, splayed his fingers, and watched four tiny wakes speed away from him into the dark. He had done this before, in his grandfather's little aluminum fishing skiff, with its putt putting two-stroke engine many times, but he had never, not even as a four-year-old to whom everything was new and amazing, had been so overwhelmed by the sight of those momentary grooves. It came to him with the force of a revelation that you had to have been imprisoned to fully understand what freedom was. I'll die before I let them take me back. He understood that this was true and that it might come to that, but he also understood that right now it had not. Luke Ellis raised his cut and dripping hands to the night, feeling free air rush past them, and began to cry. So I love that. It, all, it makes me a little emotional because I think we see Luke have a little bit of an anti-Dufresne uh, outside of Shawshank kind of moment with that notion of freedom and the, the, brutal, the brutality he's endured for quite a bit of time um, and what he went through to get there and the fear he's still experiencing. So this part of the novel, we really see this little boy's bravery and, you know, we see the man, we see the man coming through that determined spirit. Um, So I love that. And I love those moments where um, Luke is on his own, just feverishly Clawing with all his might to get free and to escape the torment of what was going on. But then what's also nice is we have in the second half of the novel is Luke remembering his friends and doing all that he can to get back there and for someone to believe him and to be reunited with them again once more. So those are my characters that I just adored more than anything within this story. So let's go ahead and transition to my last section of our episode, which is going to be our wishing well, uh, as well as my concluding thoughts on the Institute. Oh Okay, listeners, this is our last section covering 2019's The Institute, and this is a segment I'd like to call The Wishing Well, where we're going to explore the 15%, 10% little pizza wedge, the little zone of emptiness I feel that's keeping me from being 100% satisfied with this novel. So it's pretty small, but there are a few things I did want to explore with you guys and talk about some of the things I wished may have gone differently in this text or some other ideas that might have made it a more richer and resonating experience. But the first one I want to talk about is my first category, is more on Mrs. Sigsby or the Institute staff in general. As I kind of mentioned in our previous section, we don't have a lot of character development, especially concerning the villains. And Miss Sigsby, uh, Julia Sigsby, is the head of the Institute. She's our main villain in the spotlight and we we don't have anything on her the only thing I could kind of find was on page 294 where there's a direct quote that says the institute had become her life and she was okay with that and it's like what um that's it so I think I would have really wanted a little bit more on her to make her more than just a menacing, sadistic presence with no backstory. She reminds me greatly of Dolores Umbridge from Harry Potter. Um, Dolores Umbridge is just the worst and such a sinister villain in Harry Potter, but I... I think with Dolores Umbridge, we even have backstory on her parents and her mom's a muggle and her dad was a janitor in the Ministry of Magic and she's got all these childhood issues and she's a super punk and has been her whole life. But I I feel like Dolores Umbridge had more backstory than Mrs. Sigsby. And so... I think that if we would have had a little bit more character associated with some of the villains, they wouldn't be so forgettable and so disposable to the reader. Cause I I really felt um with Mrs. Sigsby's final moments, I could have given two craps. I was just like, Cool, good, out of out of my face, out of my hair, you know, and I I was totally um saddened that I felt that way because there just wasn't anything to grab on. So I he um, in the text Steve illustrates that many of the institute's staff is um, much of them are former military. So I would have really liked to have learned just a little bit more. Um, I think overall uh, for villains we got little chunks of character for the kids. And we got even less than that with some of the villains. I think there's one staff member called Corinne the Slapper. She works in back half. And we got more background information on her than we got Mrs. Sigsby. Corinne, um, kind of what we learned about Corinne is that she works in back half and she's only able to work four month shifts at a time because back half is such a sort of electromagnetic, um, almost radioactive um, in, in terms of it's frying the staff's brain because the mental electrical energy from the children's minds and their bodies and what they're doing to the kids is creating this kind of electromagnetic field that's basically barbecuing everybody's circuits. And so Corinne is only able to work in four months chunks. She has a partner. She leaves, uh, I think in like a New Hampshire town and she tells her partner that, uh, it's, I work for a secret military operation and they call Corinne the slapper because she just slaps kids all the time really hard. And she definitely gets some good justice, uh, (laughs) uh, toward the end. But, I felt we had more backstory with a small little bit part like her in the slapper than we did Mrs. Sixby, and so I just felt that I I just shook my head a little bit because I didn't give a crap about Miss Sixby, and that was a really good opportunity to. Yes, he painted a very sinister villain, a very menacing presence, a very cruel woman who's just hardened and has this tunnel vision for the Institute's initiative, but it's like, surely she must have had love or loss in her life or pain or something that's driving her other than military backbone obligation. Like surely there must be a little bit more. So I feel with some of the Institute staff, but most especially Mrs. Sigsby, I was really hungry for a little bit more because as I mentioned previously, like all sort of 80s and 90s popcorn thrill rides, the bad guys are instantly disposable and there's nothing really redeemable there and they're kind of just on screen to be bad and then the good guys triumph and the end. And so it's like, it's a little too simple in that regard. So Mrs. Sigsby definitely needed some more backstory. If any villain got some spotlight time, I think she deserved that. So the second area, um, a couple coins I'm casting into the wishing fountain is the time period or the passing of time. So this book, as I mentioned earlier, moves very fast. Um, The entire stretch of time that Luke is kidnapped and escapes is probably no more than a month. Um, And granted, the suffering and torture within the Institute probably made it feel so much longer, 10 times longer. But in the last hundred pages, the action is moving so fast, we're really going hour by hour. And so this story just moved so quickly, that I wonder if there might have just been some time to slow down. Um, in terms of, you know, maybe it took uh, Luke a little bit of time to make his way to Dupre. You know, maybe he wasn't found right away. Maybe he was on the run for a couple more weeks. You know, um, or maybe he was stuck in the Institute longer than that. Maybe the exchange between front half and back half wasn't so immediate because it seems there's like a less than two week turnover from front half to back half. So the pacing of this novel, it's a thrill ride, but it, I think without the character development and without the the passing of time or a little bit more time in order for the reader to kind of settle into the character's experience, it, it feels like it goes a little too fast. And on this second read-through, I did have a little bit more acceptance of that because I had gone through it originally already and was aware. But I, I was still sort of wondering why the urgency? Like, why did we need to go so fast when, you know, he could have easily had Luke be on the run for two weeks before he made it to Dupre or... um or you know, a couple months or something like that, where I don't know. I just any other insertion or idea that could have um, elaborated uh, the the time spent, because I really do think that when we have time passing in novels, it really creates that sense of. I don't know, growth or longing or desire or um, it helps us identify with the character in a deeper way because this, you know, the longer time passes, the the more time there is for deeper understanding and, and reflection. And for example, um, so many reviewers just throw the novel It next to this story mostly because um, to market it, you know, and it's got the presence of children. But in it we've got 27 years you know and then we also have quite a bit of time between summer and school starting again and the kids disappearing in dairy and so I think we just have that time passing in a greater way um to where the the reader is able to kind of breathe a minute and breathe in what's going on and allow the change to sink in a little more. So with that, uh, I don't know how Mr. King does it, but he's always so fresh with contemporary culture. He's just so plugged into the modern day. He knows all the like kid shows and teen pop bands and YouTube channels. And it's just like, I don't know how he does it for somebody in his seventies. Like he knows more media culture stuff than I do. So very very impressed by that but I wonder if maybe this might have been a little more interesting if maybe we had more than one time period because we are in modern day when this is uh written we've got the internet we've got all of the social media things and the contemporary culture for the young kids but I I wonder if there might have been uh some flashbacks or something where it was demonstrating another time period period at work uh in some sort of way just to kind of because they keep announcing that the institute's been around for over 70 years but we really don't get to see that like other than it's been doing the same thing for all of these years so maybe we could have you know flashback back all the way to the 50s to the creation of the institute or we could have flashed back to when mrs Sigsby was hired on as a young woman and what made her such a a super evil see you next Tuesday, if you know what I mean. And, um, I, you know, I think with some flashbacks, uh, indicating different time periods, it might, might've helped a little bit, or at least might've really hit home, slowed down the really fast pace of this book and just giving the reader some time to uh, digest that this is this violence against children, these atrocities committed against children all over the world and their families has been going on for quite a long time. Um, With that, my next point My third point is about Tim Jameson. I really do wish his character was utilized in a greater way. And so bridging together the the time period and Tim Jameson, I couldn't help but wonder or wish if maybe Tim Jameson might have been connected to the Institute in some way. He's not. He is really kind of a floater character for me. We see him in the first 40 pages. We see him around page 350, where he is an immense amount of help to Luke and to um, others later on in the final chapters of the book. But he's just this nice guy, and I I just feel like so much more could have been done with that. So in my imaginings, I wondered if maybe he could have escaped from the institute, you know, um, or he maybe his father worked there and he snuck out and this is me creating my own fiction which helps me go to sleep at night sometimes. I hope you guys do the same thing. Um, What we learned about in school with creative writing is to get you in that fiction place, that writing place, sometimes if you watch a tv show or read a novel or watch a movie and you really don't like how something ended or you don't like where a plot's going, you can always imagine how you would make it better and so i found myself doing that on this second read through imagining how tim jameson's character could have been utilized in a greater way and so if we didn't want to sort of have a double escape meaning having tim and luke escape at different time periods or something like that then i wish tim could have been involved or incorporated in the Institute in some way, Um, either having a family member work there and he could have, you know, snuck out on his bike one day and saw, you know, snuck onto the campus or something like that to where he was shocked and terrified and kind of put in this lifelong questioning area. And then he's able to atone later on by helping Luke and his friends. I don't know. I just, I think that Tim is a waste of great potential. Um, he's very useful in one of the climactic action scenes that occurs in Dupre. But, uh, you know, after that, it's all action, 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 to which he's become sort of a nice little foster dad for um, the aftermath uh, of in the latter half in the novel. But it's like, that's it? Um okay, you know, so I just wish that Tim could have been connected and that way he could have really been able to identify and share in a greater way with Luke. Um, When they finally do encounter one another, I think like their fates could have been more intertwined or there might have been more of a bond, more of a character richness for Tim Jameson for sure. Um, I, I enjoy his character when he's there. He's a good guy. He does all the right things. But aside from just being this former cop who becomes a sort of different cop in a small town, I just, I think there's more needed there. I really think there was more needed in all of the characters all around. So I wonder given that Mr. King is a little bit seasoned, if just maybe he just wanted to keep this one light and by light make it a really action, popcorn, fast moving thrill ride, where the majority is kind of focused on the the pacing and speed of, of moving through this story and really tying up all loose ends. So those are the three, my three coins into the wishing well where I I feel if those were explored or fleshed out in a greater way, I might be a little more satisfied. So this kind of all uh, trickles down or funnels into my final thoughts of the novel. And I was thinking about this. And as I mentioned earlier, this novel is working very much like a favorite snack. I personally adore ice cream and popcorn, but I was thinking about chips with this novel or 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 crisps for, for my UK listeners. Um, Have you ever had just a bag of chips? You've decided you're like, I'm going to town. This is happening. And you start eating the chips and they're delicious and amazing and so satisfying. And then about like after, I don't know, like 25-ish handfuls of chips, you start to lose the flavor a little bit or your taste buds go a little numb to where you're, you're enjoying the crunch, you're enjoying the saltiness, but you lose the individual flavor for a second and you're just mindlessly eating them and you can't really taste it as strongly anymore. I feel that's what happens to me in this book, specifically with the last hundred pages. The last hundred pages is like that chip bag where the first 400 pages, I am loving my chips. I love uh, barbecue. Um, If you guys have your own favorite chips to uh, (laughs) bridge to this uh, little metaphor here, but I I'm gnawing on the chips, loving them for the first 400 pages. I'm enjoying it, enjoying the ride, but then I can't really taste it as strongly anymore in the last 400 pages. Is or pardon me, in the last 100 pages, especially when you see that the story is dwindling. When you when you pick up the pages with your fingers and you feel how thin it's getting, and you start to get a little nervous. You're like, oh God, is this all we have left? What's good? What? So I, I just feel I lost some of the charm and I lost some of the the people who I wanted to see, mostly the kids I didn't get to see a lot of. It was mostly the Institute staff, its goons, um, Mrs. Sigsby who I cared nothing about, um, the action scenes are cool and fun if you and I think the action scenes are really hard to write in general so I appreciate what King does with that but I just sort of lost the flavor of my chip a little bit still eating it still enjoying it it's just my taste buds got a little fatigued or my tongue got a little numb whatever uh you know sort of flavor depletion happened a little bit So I just was saddened by that, and I kind of wish we might have had a little bit more character richness rather than speedy action. Uh, Those last hundred pages just feel like Mr. King was hitting the gas, wanting a really epic, climactic conclusion in which he was going to wrap everything up in a bow for us. Um, But I was really, really craving more. Um, When I talked to Liz R. about this, she, of course, has that wonderful, fantastic, radical, acceptance that I envy at times. And with this one, I, on the second read-through, I appreciated it a little bit more. I was a little bit more um, accommodating to it, but I was not wanting, I, I wanted more at the ending, period. I just wanted more for Luke and the characters who are with Luke at the end. I wasn't ready to say goodbye I was so curious as to what's next for them and why they just decided to scatter the way they did. I, um, I just wanted more. And I feel like when we are at those final pages with Luke, we're just getting started. Like, we're just getting warmed up now. Now there's another quest. And now, you know, our sweet little precious Luke, he's we have a little bit of idea of where he's headed. He's going to enroll in Emerson and MIT because he's a little genius, but you know, I I just wanted more. And so this novel is ripe for a sequel. I don't think we'll get one, but it's ripe. And these characters, uh, the ones who are with Luke at the end, I really want to know what happens to them. And I wasn't really ready to let them go, especially since the last hundred pages just flew by in this super action packed climax. So I was hoping for more time, either a flash forward or a meetup in five years or something. And I think, um, as I mentioned previously, I'm getting real used to filet mignon because, you know, I just read some absolute uh, 10 out of 10 Stephen King novels previously with Joyland and Duma Key and uh, I have, and Lisey's story, like these are, these are full main course dinners, guys. These are five-star restaurant experiences. And this one is definitely a very tasty, greasy burger joint that is all kinds of satisfying, but... I, I am hungry for a little more, so, uh, it's, it's just, maybe I'm just insatiable, maybe I'm just a bratty reader, because I've been spoiled so much with what I've been reading lately, um, I think Gene Simmons from, I think that's his name, from the band Kiss, he has this, I don't know why I'm mentioning this right now, but I, it made me think of it, he used to have this terrible crass quote about, like, women, uh, that he would court quickly for the night. And he would, if a woman wasn't as attractive or as, I don't know, sparkly or, uh, the usual caliber, he would say, you can't have filet mignon every night. Sometimes you have to go to McDonald's, which is so, I don't know why I mentioned that quote. Please forgive me. Um, I'm going on a mini tangent here, but I think that this novel might be like that a little bit, where maybe Mr. King just wanted a fast-moving adventure that's reading very much like an 80s popcorn movie. We've got kids who have these mutant powers, and the adults are the bad guys, and it's just this fantastic race to safety and to destroy the Institute. So I, I, with that in mind, bring on the burger and fries, bring on my milkshake, bring on the candy bars, the chips, the popcorn, the ice cream, all of the things that are tasty and familiar and good. But they're not exactly resonating as deep. Um, but but maybe maybe they can, and I think maybe when we get a television show that might uh, flesh out some of these kids a little more, or some of the bad guys a little more. I don't know. So overall, I'm an eighty-five, fifteen, maybe a ninety, ten. In which I really enjoy this book, guys. It's delightful, just like your favorite snack, just like an old you know, uh, preferred junk food that you reach for. Anytime you're feeling nostalgic or want some comfort, that's what this novel does. And I think that's why I went back to it. Um, In the middle of my grand plan, my mind's like, nope, you need to go back and hang out with the kids at the Institute, to which I loved and I was so glad I did. Um, But I hope that uh, some of these points that you share with me or identify with me, it's totally fine if you don't. And if you are like my friend, Liz are and thinks this this just a five star 10 out of 10. Awesome. I can see where that can be, um, found for sure. I can definitely see that. So I really uh, recommend that everybody read it, especially now because it's just feel good. And there are several moments with Luke and his friends that make me tear up and just make me really nostalgic for adolescence and friendship. And that's where Mr. King excels when he writes about kids and trauma and friendship. We see maybe the most powerful gifted storyteller in the world. And so I highly recommend you guys, take advantage of that um and uh, investigate this novel because it's a ton of fun and all Stephen King fans especially if you've read it need to dive into this book because you'll you'll be reminded of some of the good stuff so that's really all I have for this final chunk uh coming up in our next episode it's a mystery um I'm thinking we might actually do our very first Richard Bachman. So I will hopefully be decided on that here in the next day or so. Or uh, I will just see where the wind takes me. If not, we might go back to the regularly scheduled plan of Full Dark, No Stars. But uh, I don't know. I'm feeling a little Bachman-esque. I'm feeling a little um, interested in a little story called The Long Walk. So uh, that might happen. But until then, please reach out with any comments or concerns or suggestions, ideas. I'm all ears at underratedsk@gmail. at Gmail. I would love to hear from you guys as the podcast is still growing and learning and trying and being. <laughs> and, um, so if you would like to explore any other novels coming up, I would love to hear any suggestions for you. I might have a little mini episode coming up about what's, uh, some of my thoughts on some of the characters. We may have a catharsis corner coming up here pretty soon. So I look forward to being with you again. So please take care wherever you are, and I will see you soon. Bye-bye!